Hello, and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor, Tristan Free, and welcome to part two of this episode on whole genome sequencing in rare disease research and treatment. In part one, we discussed the impacts the technology has had on both improving the clinical diagnosis and management of rare diseases, and also its impact on drug development and basic research studies. So when we were recording this initial conversation, it sparked a really interesting debate around the ethics concerning whole genome sequencing and its proper application, which is what we will cover in this episode, delving into the impacts of race, religion and way of life on the application of whole genome sequencing. On a genome of a white North European, you see about 4 million variants. On an individual from certain minority populations, you'll see 7 to 8 million variants. And so just that lack of that reference actually causes problems in interpreting the results. It causes problems in understanding what disorders. Separating the fact from the fiction in whole genome sequencing applications, it brought into my head the uh, the film Gattaca, um, where they they sequence everyone's genome and then they kind of it's it's used poorly. Do you come across people considering is this the first step on a on a road towards that kind of world? Yeah, um, so I'm laughing because I, I have lost track of how many Gattaca references I've heard. And ensuring that unintended or unwanted findings don't prevent the tool from being used to its full potential. You know, while I appreciate what David said about consenting people for a whole host of things that may not be relevant to their current presentation, we do just need to recognize that this is data and we can filter in or out as much as we want or need to. We can put the right you know, structure in place of the data that would allow us to utilize it at the appropriate time for the patient. Throughout the episode, you'll be hearing from David Dimock, Senior Medical Director of the Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine, Christine Stanley, Chief Director of Clinical Genomics at Variantix, and finally, Take Ogawa, Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Somogen, the whole genome, exome and gene sequencing solutions company who I would also like to thank for bringing this fascinating group of people together. So, David, in the last episode, you mentioned that one of the factors that slowed down clinicians in requesting whole genome screens was a hesitancy to apply for the um, consent from parents or patients. Um, Are you seeing a sense of unease from some people who may not have a good understanding of the requirements or a distrust of having their child's whole genome sequenced? Um, It kind of, when when you mentioned the idea of having... Um, every every child has their um, their genome sequenced. It, it brought into my head the uh, the film Gattaca, um, where they they sequence everyone's genome and then they kind of it's it's used poorly. Um, it, do you come across that kind of negative response, that kind of slight um, hesitation towards this, like people considering is this the first step on a on a road towards that kind of world? Yeah, um, so I'm laughing because I, I have lost track of how many Gattaca references I've heard, and I've actually yet to ever see the film myself. So I, I have not tortured myself that way. Oh, it's um, great. There's a great staircase in it that looks like DNA all the way up. It's a nice little Easter egg. So, you know, I, I think there is a world of difference between sequencing a healthy child or healthy prenate and trying to make, shall we say, cosmetic changes where there's a huge risk of off-target and other problems. It's an entirely different deal when a child is critically ill in the intensive care unit and may die of a disease that you may find a treatment for. And so I I think we have to understand that these are not the same thing morally or ethically. When you're dealing with a child who is already at high risk of a genetic disease that may kill them if you don't get an answer quickly, it's a very different concept. Um, So 
the study that we published um, later on called Insight 2, we asked parents actually, so we had nurses get concerned rather than genetic counselor or clinical geneticists, just simply because there aren't enough geneticists. You know, essentially we got nurses to get concerned and we actually looked at the families a week after return of results, six months later, a year later, and we actually have data now two years out. And really showing that the parents have no decision or regret. Um, the only parents that we had that had regret they had regret their child died and we didn't make a diagnosis. And so their regret was not that we had a genome sequencing test done, but that we didn't fix their kid. In that clinical study where we were getting research consent, unfortunately, um, about uh, only about a fifth of the families enrolled. With Project Baby Bear, we had over a 99% approach to enrollment rate because we were not requiring all of the research consent stuff as well. So I, I think what we're seeing is that a woman, and then when we look at the family six months, a year out, they feel like they have done the right thing by sequencing their child. Um, and I think when you have interventions, the, the whole debate is how much information do you return and what is it appropriate to return for a newborn? And really, can you have those conversations in an intensive care unit above and beyond the primary question for the test? But overwhelmingly, it was the parents that were happy, physicians, ethicists, um, Sociologists had real concerns with what we were doing. Um, and I would say that those concerns and anxieties were not realized by the families. Well, it's uh, it's very reassuring to hear that parents and patients, um, ostensibly the people that matter most in this, are the ones that are most pleased with the decisions that they have made regarding their consent to sequencing. Um, and you covered a little bit in the first part of the podcast, Taka, but what do you see as the role of industry in improving public access to these techniques, but also the techniques capabilities? I think the, the short answer is a significant role. Um, as as we've been hearing, uh, you know, a lot of the this entire valley chain, there's a lot of players, a lot of steps in that. And we've been hearing, uh, we've been getting a great overview of those various steps and the complexities of those interfaces, right? And and in some of those portions, uh, industry plays a pivotal role. Um, we've been talking about the data generation piece. What I mean by that, of course, is you know the, the sequencing technologies themselves. And uh, these a lot of these technologies were uh, invented uh, in, in an academic setting, but ultimately commercialized through industry, right? And, and so they made it accessible. Industry made these technologies accessible. And the technology is changing rapidly, even today, within a company or across different companies. And new players are coming into this ecosystem all the time uh, as they see the value that we're creating. So, you know, startups are abound in, in this space of, of both new sequencing technologies, data analysis, the interpretation, again, making that. Uh, and, and these are companies that are doing this, right? Uh, uh, they're making software. They're they're doing things on the cloud that you know software as a service model. Um, so they're making it accessible. And then again, kind of what I touched on earlier is is this sort of model of okay, once you have a test, how is that presented? Uh, how is that shared with with the patient and their and the family? Is it that they have to go into the physician's office, or can they do this again through a telehealth type model? So the short of it is again, industry clearly plays a major role because it's about access. You know, if, if we can't make this accessible, then we're not going to keep hearing these awesome stories that we've been hearing from the panel today. Fantastic. Um, and, and I suppose when, when you speak, speak about access from a, um, uh, a perspective of, of cost, um, those numerous startups in, in sequencing are going to help compete and drive that down, um, which may not be uh, your favorite thing, but it's uh, largely, uh, largely good. Um, so I'd like to end the, end the podcast on, on any questions that um, you guys might like to put to each other. 
Um, so does anyone have any questions they'd like to put to uh, to one of the other panelists? Um, yeah, I guess I would I would like to ask David about, I mean, I know he's talking about the the fear of using information inappropriately um, isn't very high in, in parents who have a critically ill child. But when you move it from that arena into something like uh, a living genome type of uh, idea on medical health and understanding that clinical phenotype can present at any age. And, and additionally, just like understanding your risk, uh, your carrier risk of having an affected child could um, maybe allow for other interventions of parents so that they don't even have a critical child because they knew that they were at risk earlier and they have options to them with PGD or something else. Um, do you feel like the you know, what you've seen as far as the risk of, you know, feeling fear of that information being used will be appreciated if it were more applied to healthy individuals uh, looking for risk of having an affected child or pre-symptomatic type of risk? Oh, a nice small question for a Friday morning. Um, <laughs> so my background actually is in newborn screening and, and I'm, a, I'm a metabolic physician by training. So I am used to that whole issue of calling a family with an abnormal newborn screen result and saying, you probably don't even remember that your child had this test, but your child has failed the newborn screen for a condition that may be life-threatening, or it may be a false positive. And in some of the disorders, nine out of the 10 families we would call, it was going to be a false positive. And one out of the 10, we saved the kid's life. And I would say families are often terrified and their physicians are actually even more panicked. Um, when it's a condition that they don't feel comfortable with understanding how they can help the family through. And so there's this huge um, background in newborn screening of spending a lot of time providing resources for families and physicians. So when you make that call, the places they go to will provide them with the right information. Um, and similarly, the physicians will feel supported in being able to walk that journey with the families. In newborn screening, one of the, the key requirements really is that a condition has an intervention um, that improves outcome compared with the condition being detected clinically. Um, and so you're dealing with this group of disorders where essentially in making that call, you are dramatically likely to improve that kid's outcome if they have the disorder. And I would say that for most of the families that you have the conversation with, if their child turns out to have had a false positive newborn screen, the families are like, I'm so glad that this program exists and that we don't have this condition but we feel like it was worth it because we know that in doing this screening, some other family's kid's lives might be saved. Um, and so in that situation, we just see this, this huge convergence of acceptance of this process. But I think it's worth noting that in that situation, you know, we have potentially several hours of conversations with the families as we walk them through this. And it's very personal. You know, as medicine, medicine has always been very personal. I, I would say, you know, it, it may not be as personalized, but it's always very personal when it's you and, and you're in a room with the family, it's, it's very personal. Um, I, I think it's a different deal. And so we've seen that, you know, with, with newborn screening, when there's been a push to go to conditions beyond, and I think Crabbe would be the example of that, which isn't treatable. There's actually been a reasonable pushback, both from the professional communities who don't want to have those conversations with the family um, and from, from families who go through the process, perhaps with a false positive or with scare, or perhaps didn't even want to know sooner. Uh, and what, sorry, what was that condition? Crabbe, K-R-A-B-B-E. Um, and so New York State was one of the first states to start screening for this. Um, and, and it's been a very difficult walk because 
There are definitely families that want to know ahead of time what's going on with their child and would want to know about an untreatable condition. And there are other families who don't. And it's very difficult to get, and I would say permission rather than consent, but permission to actually and have those conversations with what a family wants um, when you're not in that position where it's, it's up close and personal. Um, I think one of the things we've seen with um, all of us, the, the federal, um, US federal program, um, where there's been very successful remote consent for genetic testing using videos um, and questions. And similarly, Genome England has had very successful programs that have been largely influenced by parents, patients, and unaffected individuals to, to get um, permission to do this kind of testing and have families realize what they're signing up for and then to have control over the process. So I think the technology is coming along in a way that is socially acceptable for a majority language speaking mainstream population to be able to interact. The majority of our patients in San Diego are don't speak English first language and, and would not be considered white by US census standards. Um, and that's great because these are the individuals that actually most benefit from testing, but also, you know, on a genome of a white North European, you see about 4 million variants. On an individual from certain minority populations, you'll see 7 to 8 million variants. And so just that lack of that reference actually causes problems in interpreting the results. It causes problems in understanding what disorders. So when you say you'll see the genome of a white North European person. Yeah. Why is there that difference in the variant type? Is it because that's those are variants when compared to genome sets that have been compiled based on white North and European? That's exactly people? right. So the reference um, sequences right now are based okay. on largely on white North Europeans um, and actually several specific white North European individuals are the, are the backbone of that reference sequence. Um, okay. So it's that it's that sort of the genomic data. But, but bias. beyond that, the issue is Again. that because you know, and I mean, you know, Genome England's done a phenomenal job at sequencing lots of white North Europeans because that's the majority population in the UK. But that data isn't necessarily very helpful to us in San Diego, where the majority of our population is not from the UK. Um, and so, you know, Genome England's done a huge effort, and sort of the next five years of their plan, they are actually specifically going after historically underrepresented minorities. And um, Richard Scott was talking this about the uh, the recent um, American genetics meeting, that actually how, because of COVID, where their minority populations are overrepresented in the COVID cohort and they're sequencing individuals with COVID, they're actually now dramatically catching up with their minority while well, they're actually now minority overrepresented. Uh, yeah, so so I mean, I think, you know, the, the issue here is that we have this ability to get consent for educated white North European English speakers who have a college education. It's really very challenging when you look at newborn screening, that gaps um, in Wisconsin, we had huge challenges with these conversations with our, um, you know, about 5%, 10% of the newborn screens we did were for Plains people, so Amish, um, Mennonite, etc. Um, and, you know, they don't have computers. So computer consent doesn't really work. They may or may not be comfortable interacting with an iPad. Um, and, um, you know, for many cultures, things are done face-to-face -face personally and not over a computer. And so I, th I think we have real challenges with, with getting permission and consent going beyond things that we can clearly say ethically are in, and I, and I, I have a pediatric event here, that ethically are in the child's best interest to do because we're gonna benefit that individual. Um, and so I think, you know, we have, uh, there's a lot being done, you know, um, the All of Us program is, again, preferentially looking at underrepresented pro populations, both rural and 
ethnic and cultural minorities. Um, and so they're learning a lot. And one of the things they're learning, at least in San Diego with our population here, is that that really isn't a substitute for face-to-face -face conversations with certain of our populations. That is that is kind of part of, of, of where I think we're going forward with this, is that, that ability to get permission and consent. Um, as we alluded to, you know, if you diagnose a child with many disorders, um, Alan used the example of Titan, um, but, you know, if we diagnose a child with Fanconi anemia, by definition, both parents are going to have a genetic predisposition to cancers. Um, there are unintended consequences when our primary intent is to help the child. Um, and the other thing, we, we talked a little bit earlier about the ACMG 59 list. Um, the, the vast majority of our population in San Diego, the immediately clinically actionable things that we find as off-target results in genome are not on the ACMG 59 list. And I think that in large reflects the way that list was chosen. It was focused on adult cancer. And I'm going to say again, in populations that were represented in the Pacific, um, sorry, in the Atlantic Northeast of the US, um, because those were the individuals that used to volunteer for genomic studies. And so, you know, G6PD affects about one in 10 African-Americans. It's a really big deal when you're in an intensive care unit, if there are certain drugs that might cause a hemolytic anemia. Um, it's, it's our most common reported incidental finding. It's not on the ACMG list, but it's really important for our African-American population. There are certain other disorders um, that predispose you to bad drug reactions in our um, Pacific Island and our um, East Asian populations which again, are not a consideration if that isn't the majority of the people you see, but because it's a significant proportion of our population in San Diego, these are really big deal things to report. We don't use the ACMG 59 list as our basis. What we are doing is when we are seeing things that are known to cause adverse drug reactions, when we see it in the genome, we are reporting those. G6PD, for example, is a well-described enzymatic defect that leads you to being vulnerable to side effects of certain drugs, and that is much more common in individuals of African ancestry. Just because you touched on pharmacogenomic variants, um, a lot of pharmacogenomic variants are, uh, pharmacogenomic testing is designed specifically around variants, and a lot of these variants are in intronic regions, and they're very common, so they would be, you know, not the target of any type of rare disease genetic test, but when you do whole genome sequencing testing, um, you have the ability to identify this information, and so it can be like an add-on to, you know, a lot of times these kids are on a lot of different medications, and so if you knew that they were a slower rapid of metabolizer for particular medication that they're being treated with that could help you adjust their medical management. And, and then, it, you know, just to go back a little bit, if, if, if we all had our genome sequenced, we would know if we were carriers for diseases that could result in a child that ends up being a critically ill neonate. So, you know, trying to get rapid testing at the time of birth is a challenge right now. What if you knew about it years ahead of time and you could plan for it? So I know that there's a lot of maybe fear and frustration and like how that information is communicated and consented. And those are all problems we can work on, but having access to this information, your own information about yourself, I think we could all get on board with wanting to know that and know what our risks are for having affected children, for having potential dangerous drug interactions, um, and in and, uh, having uh, onset of clinical symptoms like cardiomyopathy, which would go unrecognized um, unless you knew that you were a carrier for a pathogenic variant that causes that disease. So I think it's more like, um, you know, redirecting the conversation to, you know, present whole genome sequencing, the benefits of it and how that, that can work in your healthcare from the time you were born until the time you die, um, that there's, there's a utility to it that can be extrapolated and used at the appropriate time in that patient's life. 
um, in, that would benefit them greatly. And um, I think it is consenting and communication and understanding and putting in tools to prevent us from misusing the information is really important in order to be able to utilize the great uh, amount of knowledge and data that that's contained in whole genome sequencing. If, if I can put the counterpoint to that, um, based on background in newborn screening, one of the things that we saw is that if you add more marginal conditions, and I don't necessarily mean not conditions that won't help, um, but let me use an example. The Amish population were extremely concerned about the addition of severe combined immunodeficiency to newborn screening because they were concerned about bone marrow transplant. And so they didn't necessarily want to know about a condition that was going to lead to a bone marrow transplant. So when Wisconsin added um, severe combined immunodeficiency to newborn screening, a significant proportion of the Plains um, folks actually stopped screening their children for all of the other con treatable conditions. And so I think one of the things we always just have to have in mind is the totality of what we do. Um, for me, doing a rapid whole genome on a critically ill neonate that gets them an answer is reason to do it. And if we get to the point where we try and crowd in too many other things, we can get to the point where the clear benefit is lost in the noise. And so we're very much of the opinion that if a family just wants to know about what's causing their child's disorder, and even if we find other potentially treatable disorders, but looking for those would mean that the parents would choose not to have a genome done for their child. That's an ethical debate that we have to have to figure our way through. And at least my opinion is, I would rather save the kid for what's going to kill them in front of us right now. And we can have a conversation down the road about looking for other things that may be treatable, that may improve the kid's outcome. But I think one of the dangers of whole genome sequencing is sometimes we feel like we have to do everything at once. And where that, that overwhelming massive data actually can lead us to the same problem that we saw in Wisconsin with newborn screening, that if you try and return too much data, you actually get people electing out of a task that can be life-saving. And, and I suppose that's the um, that's kind of the argument that gets made against is, is that if you have all of this information there, and obviously it's great for all of the reasons that we've talked about in the, the first part of this podcast and, and in terms of <clears throat> collating all of those numerous different diagnostics into one, essentially, um, and being able to achieve all of this great wealth of information, the temptation then is to look for every aspect and then to go start going on down that path. And as you said, that, that begins to exclude people. So I guess it's a, a very difficult ethical debate now about the pragmatism of how much you include, how how far you go into the data, um, how much you share with people, um, which are all things that I know are obviously clearly are being discussed at the moment, but it's still kind of on the um, on the edge of where the ethical debate is at at the moment. You know, while I appreciate what David said about consenting people for a whole host of things that may not be relevant to their current presentation, you know, why, what's their chief complaint? What's the main issue? Um, we do just need to recognize that this is data and we can filter in or out as much as we want or need to. And so even if it's not an appropriate time for someone to have, uh, you know, information communicated to them about some component of the data that was um, identified, um, there's always, if the data is there, there's always an opportunity to have that conversation at the right time. And so I wouldn't look at it as being uh, a way to say, you know, have it or don't have it. We can put the right, you know, structure in place of the data that would allow us to utilize it at the appropriate time for the patient. Yeah, yeah. To totally, totally agree. Just to add my two cents, um, my somewhat naive uh, two cents to this is, 
as I, as we've all been saying, you know, whole genome sequencing is is merely a method uh, that generates this data set uh, that is unique to that particular individual. So this idea that we sequence once and test often, I think, resonates here because once you have that data set, you can keep coming back to it, you know, over time and even within one setting. So this idea of a virtual panel starts to to fit into this. Uh, and then the second point I think we've been touching on is is who owns this data anyway, right? And and right now this idea that you send a sample, it goes into a lab, and then you just get the report. Um, but ultimately your your genome is residing somewhere that you don't have access to as a, as a person or individual. So this data ownership piece, I think is uh, critical in that sense that you actually own your own data, that you can walk around with it just like you do your, your own uh, cell phone. Um, I think is something we need to start thinking about. And, and clearly, you know, with companies that are, again, working on cloud computing and data storage and, and a lot of big companies, as we know, are, are, are looking at this in terms of who, where is your health data and how is it accessible and what's the security around that and so on. So I think this is a, you know, it's, a, it's an evolving space where it's still very nascent, but uh, the concept of data ownership and then the ability to test over and over again from the same data, I think, is, is, is going to become more on the forefront here. Yeah, and I think I would just I would agree that you know at the end of the day we had this ability to have consent conversations as often as we need to. It's you know ideally your relationship with your physician is an ongoing conversation, not a one and done. Um, and just because you don't want something at some point doesn't mean you don't want it later. Kind of the converse, unfortunately, is not true. That once you've asked for it and you've seen it, you you can't forget it. Um, we get into a lot of issues around data data quality as well. Was this data validated for this particular use? Um, and so, you know, clinical labs, this is one of the huge challenges is, is okay, well, we did this test looking for this thing. And as I said, I don't want us to get to be a point where life-saving technology is not used because people are too scared of the ethical implications. I would rather that we just said, we're just gonna look for this one thing and we save the kid's life if we haven't got a solution for the other, but I do think the other problems are solvable. Um, I just, I, I think we just have to be careful not to miss the huge benefit that we can see with genomes today because people are too scared of the, the other ramifications. Um, and at the end of the day, it's just another test. And so, yeah, I, I think there's a huge ongoing conversation that needs to be had, but we shouldn't miss the benefit that we have today of this life-saving technology because we're scared of things that we haven't yet solved. Well, if that's, uh, if that's everything that everyone has to say, I think we'll wrap it up there. So firstly, thank you all so much for, um, for joining on the podcast. Um, David, it's been great to have you here. Thank you for having me. I appreciated the conversations. And, uh, and Christine, thanks again. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a very stimulating conversation. I learned a lot myself. And, uh, and, and Taka, thanks for, for providing the, the industry perspective. Thank you, Tristan. This is great. Thank you. Well, if you've been interested by the topics discussed in this episode, you may want to check out our in-focus on whole genome sequencing for precision medicine sponsored by Somogen over on www.biotechniques.com. Thank you for listening and goodbye.